0: Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets. So many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards. You name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. not divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. Episode 32 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have a fantastic and really fun episode today. This is an episode I've been looking forward to for some time. Producer Dave, I know you have been buzzing about this episode, and you have been hard at work in the Shine On Podcast studio, prepping for what we have lined up today.
1: Yes, well, I'm a fan of television and film and popular culture, and I'm sure you will reveal soon to our guests why that's apropos of this episode.
0: Dave, that's absolutely right. And coming up on today's episode, our featured guest on the Shine On podcast is Syracuse University Professor Robert Thompson. He has been referred to by the Associated Press as the pop culture ambassador, and we have him with us today on the Shine On podcast. Professor Thompson will join me as a featured guest on the podcast. He is a media scholar, and he focuses his research on television history and pop culture. He is a renowned professor at Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Public Communications, a sought-after media commentator for anything and everything television, radio, and film. We're going to talk with Bob about the portrayal of family, marriage, relationships, and divorce on TV and in the movies. What are those defining moments in television history, the television shows and the characters that had a monumental impact on society, culture, and our views? We're going to go back in time and take a look at different decades, the shows that impacted us and forever will hold a monumental place in television history, from the portrayal of the very first divorced woman to be in a lead role on primetime TV, to shows like The Brady Bunch, which showed a blended family, to the show Golden Girls, Murphy Brown, and Modern Family, Mad Men, and one of my favorites, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, to movies like Mrs. Doubtfire. Today's episode and my interview with Bob Thompson will change the way you think about your favorite shows and will probably give you a few more shows to add to your must-watch list. We are going to get into all this and so much more with our featured guest, Bob Thompson. This is an interview you do not want to miss. Coming up next is The Docket.
1: All right, Evan, The Docket is ready to roll. Are you ready, sir?
0: Dave, I'm fired up. Let's do it.
1: Let's see what's on the docket. First docket item is interesting. Come to us from Slate.com. It's sort of a question and answer, kind of a Dear Abby kind of question. And uh, let's get to that one. (coughs) Item One. one. Headline of the piece reads, I want to divorce my unbelievably selfish husband. If I do it, though, it may destroy my daughter. And so it's a feature of Slate.com called and Feeding. What you just heard was the plea of the woman writing in. And Evan, you can tell us what you thought about this one and what you thought of the advice given to this particularly aggrieved woman.
0: Dave, my first thought was, I think you need a column. A Dear Producer <laughs> Dave column. That was my first thought.
1: <laughs> Let's look into that. I could handle that.
0: And Dave, but in all seriousness, this article highlights the questions and concerns and thoughts of so many people who are thinking about getting a divorce. And the debate, is now the right time? What impact will divorce have on my children? How will divorce affect them? And let me say this. These are absolutely fantastic questions. And without a doubt, these are just a few of the many things that anyone, anyone out there who is thinking about getting divorced should absolutely think about. Add these questions to the list of questions you should have when you have that first consultation, that first meeting with the divorce attorney. And let me say something about that first meeting with an attorney. Be organized. Write down your questions. Ask about different process choices that may be available to you based on your specific concerns, whether it's finances or in this case it is the article talks about the impact of divorce on your children. Educate yourself, not only on the legal process, but what other outside professionals may be able to provide the emotional support to you as you go through the divorce process. And this article talks about it, talks about therapy, the importance of having an outlet. And as your article mentions, and as so many of our wonderful experts who have joined us on the Shotham podcast have told us, hiding and ignoring these feelings and putting these marital problems into a box to never open it, producer David rarely is the way to go.
1: Mm. Item two comes to us from medical news today. <laughs> Item, Item two, two. Article headline reads, living alone and divorce linked to inflammation in men. This is this is particularly troubling for me, Evan, because I fall into those categories. <laughs> um, a new study looking at middle-aged adults in Denmark found that living alone and experiencing more relationship breakdowns are linked to higher, higher levels of inflammation in men. The study found no such link in women. Your thoughts?
0: Dave, I found this fascinating. I don't want to get your take and your thoughts as well, but look, I think it was my interview with Katherine Sanderson on a prior episode who talked about the relationship and happiness and the differences in gender when it comes to relationships and how we view them. Go back and listen to that episode and everything Catherine had to say. She was absolutely brilliant. But this article highlights a really interesting area of focus, the stress and the trauma of divorce, breaking up, and living alone. What does this do to someone's physical health? We've talked a lot on the podcast about mental health, And this article references studies and the science that apparently suggests divorce and breakup affects men much more when it comes to a decline in physical health. The article goes on to talk about a study and the risk factor in men specifically increases when there is a combination of many years living alone and several breakups. The study did not find this to be the case in women, but overall, this was absolutely fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, it's it, It's not that much of a surprise. The fact that it it focuses on inflammation is kind of oddly specific to me. I don't think I'm inflamed, but maybe I am. But, <laughs> but it's just... But, yeah, I Dave,
0: mean, schedule the appointment yeah, with the doctor. Do everybody a favor. Make sure you are okay. <laughs> we need you here on the podcast.
1: Let's move on to an article from Psychology Today. <laughs> Item, Item three. three comes to us from Anne Gold, Dr. Anne Gold Bouchot is the author. She writes a column called a, a Better Divorce. And the headline reads, Is Your Marriage Doomed After an Affair? Statistics suggest affairs cause divorce, but she argues it's more complicated than that. Your uh, take on this one, Evan. Dave,
0: this article gets into the statistics about divorce and infidelity and the likelihood of divorce when an affair happens and when cheating is a factor. But let's take this article and talk divorce. What will or will not happen in a courtroom? What will and what will not matter to the judge presiding over your divorce action if you were in court and litigating your divorce? New York wide practice is a no-fault state, as are many states. And look, the reality is a judge is not going to care about or be concerned about the reason the marriage is ending or that the reason it may be ending is it because— of an affair, or several affairs, or infidelity. A judge does not assign blame or look to punish a spouse because that spouse had an affair. It has absolutely no bearing on custody or parenting or the fitness or ability of a parent to care for their children, and it has no impact on the distribution of assets or finances unless significant marital money is spent on the affair. But I can't tell you how important it is to understand this. If you were starting the divorce process, if you were looking to the judge for validation or to punish your spouse because of an affair, it's not going to happen. If you were claiming your spouse is unfit to spend meaningful time with the children because of an affair, it's not going to happen. Understanding what the process looks like, the way in which the process is going to move forward and the judge's role when presiding over your divorce action is one of the most important things you can understand when you're thinking about going through a divorce.
1: All right, Evan, time once again for the Shine on Spotlight. The Shine on Spotlight.
0: Dave, on today's episode, we shine a spotlight on prenuptial agreements. The wedding buzz is here. With wedding season only a few months away, this promises to be a wedding season that we have not seen since before the pandemic. So many weddings have been canceled or pushed off one Two, three times because of the pandemic. And now in 2022, those weddings are happening. That means planning, the venue, the band, the flowers, the food choices at the cocktail hour. Fun? Sure. Stressful? Absolutely. Now, add prenups to that list. What is it about the word prenups that just makes people feel a bit uneasy? I get it. Picking out your wedding music, that's fun. Deciding whether to get married at the beach or not, that might be fun, too. But talking prenups, for most people, that's not that fun. That means talking about money, and there's not much fun about that. But I'm seeing a shift, and it started before the pandemic, and I'm seeing it during the pandemic. Maybe it's reflective of the times we're living in. Maybe people are going through self-reflection, looking to get their things in order, or a combination of a lot of other things. I think the attitude towards prenuptial agreements has drastically shifted, especially for millennials. Millennials and prenuptial agreements, is it the norm? I think we are getting there. Is it the millennial view on marriage? Is it something else? Talking about money and having a prenuptial agreement in place when it makes sense to protect assets, money, a business, whatever it may be, and figuring it out is one of the most important conversations you can have. Our featured guest today on the Shine On podcast is Professor Robert Thompson from my beloved alma mater, Syracuse University. Professor Thompson is a media scholar, a trustee professor of television and popular culture at the highly acclaimed Syracuse SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. He has been referred to as the pop culture ambassador by the Associated Press, and he has contributed to hundreds of radio and TV programs and publications worldwide. He has been interviewed by a wide range of media outlets, and his areas of research include television history and pop culture, media criticism, and TV programming. Professor Thompson is the author of several books and is the host of the podcast, Critical and Curious. Bob, I appreciate the time. Welcome to The Shine On Podcast. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? It's been a while. It has been a while, and I got to tell you, as a former student of yours at Syracuse, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I said it at the time when I was a 20-year-old college student, your television and radio and film class at Syracuse was not only one of the most popular classes, it was one of the best classes I took in college, and it forever changed the way that I think about media and TV.
2: Well, that's kind of you to say, and when I started teaching that uh, class many, many decades ago, the entire history of television was told in one semester. Now it takes three to get through it. The history of television is a lot longer than it was when I started.
0: (laughs) And Bob, we're going to get into that, but let's start by talking about the portrayal of the American family in the media. And television and American culture has a fascinating and really intertwined relationship. Now, when discussing this relationship, I would imagine it's important to understand what American culture is and also for TV executives to really have their pulse on American culture. So as a media scholar and someone who studies and looks at this relationship, how would you define American culture and how has the portrayal of it evolved on the screen over the years?
2: Well, there's two. There's different American cultures, obviously. So if we were to try to define American culture as it really is, we would, of course, be getting into a vast and complicated array of all kinds of diverse cultures with regards to economic and racial and gender and all of this kind of thing. So American culture is a very complicated, diverse thing. Television, historically, that's changing. But television and popular culture in general tended not so much to reflect American culture in all its glorious and messy diversity. It tended to actually make up a kind of mythical American culture from a bunch of elements that looked relatively familiar to us. And that's for a good chunk of the uh, network era, which of course was an oligopoly. Everybody was watching the same thing at the same time. That came to sort of stand for what normal was, what American culture was all about. And uh, whole generations of people, I think, bought into the fact that, okay, that's what American culture is. And then when television and pop culture began to shift from these pristine kind of sanitized middle class heteronormative representations. A lot of people got really upset with that because they'd been used to this other network mythology utopia that had been that had been developed. And I think a lot of the culture wars really were the result of the fact that when finally, Television was able to start reflecting real American culture to some greater extent than they did before. An awful lot of people didn't, that were much happier with that old sort of uh, culture that had been in- in- invented. And a lot of people still hadn't gotten over it yet.
0: Sure. And hey, Bob, when we hear television family, for so many people, we would think of the Tanners from Full House or the Brady's from the Brady Bunch. And these shows usually portrayed a mostly Caucasian cast, family, as they would deal with the typical family struggles, and then within 30 minutes, the show was over, there was a life lesson that was learned. But these beloved shows, they really hold a special place in our heart, but are they truly indicative of the American family, and what was the criticism, if any, when it comes to looking at these type of shows?
2: Yeah, well, let's start out. It's interesting you bring out, bring up uh, Full House and the and the Brady Bunch because in many ways, those shows were actually kind of progressive, kind of formal forward thinking than what we had had before. In Full House, in fact, you had a kind of blended family. It it, it wasn't simply a a straight mom-dad-kids situation. The Brady Bunch was positively iconoclastic when it came out in 1969 because three of the kids were from one parent, three of the kids were from another parent. That was like a pretty big deal uh, back then. So let's back up even a little further, and then we'll, we'll get to the question about the Tanners and the Bradys. When I grew up, and a lot of these I was seeing in reruns, but they were still hanging around, we were still in the television idea of this, again, utopian, Edenic American family, which was, every now and again, there would be a widowed father or something like that. But basically, it was a husband and a wife, and they were married to each other, both for the first time. It was implied that to forget that they hadn't had sex till they got married, it was implied that they never had sex. I slept in separate beds, and they you couldn't say pregnant on I Love Lucy the season that she was pregnant. She's not even in the last half of the show when she gives birth. The implication is that those, that baby came from the cabbage patch or a stork came in. So we had these shows, and the big three were probably... Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, How Do You Like That for a Title, maybe Ozzie and Harriet, the Donna Reed Show, those kinds of uh, things. So from, and some of those even started in radio. So from the 50s into the 1960s, we really had these perfect American families, but according to somebody's definition of perfect, they were suburban, they were white, they were uh, all living in single-family detached houses, and, and, and that was considered, this is the family we all wish we, we had. Even the names of their towns. Leave it to Beaver was set in a town called Mayfield. I mean, short of calling it Eden, May, of course, <laughs> has got this garden, springtime, flowering quality to it. To it. Field literally is uh, pastoral. It's a field. And then Father Knows Best was Springfield. Same deal, Springfield. Of course, when the Simpsons came out, which was an attempt to completely skewer that father-knows-best ideal, they took the same name for the town. It's also called Springfield. That was a very deliberate sort of thing. So anyway, we get this uh, period in the 50s and into the 60s of this perfect American family according to a very specific socioeconomic definition. And I don't want to say that that was a complete lie, that it didn't reflect any kind of reality in the family. I actually grew up in the 1960s and early 70s in a household with a family very similar to what I saw on Leave it to Beaver. I recognized uh, uh, some of that. But at the same time, to somehow have those very similar kinds of families that we saw over and over and over again, stand in for all of family life in America was, of course, absurd. That began to, as we went into the 1970s, we started having uh, even a, a divorced parent, as we said in the Brady Bunch, two parents who had remarried with their own kids. And by Full House, you had at the same time shows like My Two Dads and Kate and Allie, Kate and Allie were two mothers raising a bunch of kids and my two dads were two fathers. So then by modern family, of course, we actually had a gay couple very successfully raising families. So that all began to shift and change. But it was a really long time before we got to the point of seeing family in all of its warts and all, including incredibly dysfunctional families. Married with Children was a groundbreaking show on that. Those, 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 people in that family would have been better off if social services sent them to different sides of the uh, (laughs) country. And then, of course, by the time we get to the turn of the century, all bets are off. At one point, Tony Soprano's mom is trying to have him off.
0: Sure, sure. And Bob, you mentioned the 1960s and really the different decades. Now, in terms of divorce and TV, the first divorce woman really depicted on TV was apparently Lucille Ball's sidekick. Vivian Vance on The Lucy Show, which premiered in 1962. And this was a first for primetime television, the portrayal of a divorced woman. How big of a deal was this at the time? And what impact did it have on shows that followed?
2: Well, that particular show, it wasn't that big of a deal because it was pretty disguised. Yes, she was. And this, of course, wasn't I Love Lucy, the first big Lucy show. This was one of the... uh, Uh, later ones but the very fact that you had two relatively empowered women living together who had and in many ways the idea was that the characters of Lucy and Ethel from I Love Lucy had finally managed to ditch these guys that were keeping them down uh, (laughs) that they always had to apologize to at the end of every episode of I Love Lucy where they tried to actually go out and be uh, individuals so that that was that was an interesting th- thing but they did not make a lot of that divorce whenever anybody is whenever someone says oh w- when did we start getting divorced characters I, I always say well there was a in in that that Lucy show and everybody always has to go look that up to make sure was she really divorced <laughs> nobody has to look up that Ellen came out on her show in 1996 or whatever that was but it, it that Lucy show had a feminist ed- edge to it. It did begin to explore the fact that we could have a divorced uh, woman on uh, on television, but they they really didn't commit to it. To the extent that just a few years later, when Mary Tyler Moore was bringing her new show after she had been on the Dick Van Dyke show, sleeping in a separate bed, incidentally, from her husband. The original plan for the Mary Tyler Moore show, that Mary was going to be this 30-something woman who had been supporting her husband, who then leaves her, and she's a divorced woman that's got to go and make it on her own. CBS said, we were dying to have Mary on a new show. She was popular on Dick Van Dyke, but no, you can't have her be divorced. And she's not in that. She's a uh, 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 single after a long relationship, but she's not divorced. There's even, uh, and this is maybe somewhat apocryphal, but the idea was that there was a CBS executive who said the three people you can't have as leads in an American sitcom would be divorced people, people from New York, people with mustaches, and Jews. No kidding. That was the story. <laughs> this this from American television. Rhoda. The spin-off of The Mary Tyler Moore Show debuts, I don't know, about four seasons later. She is Jewish and very much embraces that identity. She gets separated from her husband in a special two-part episode. She's a New Yorker, and the show takes place in New York. I don't think she was particular her suit on her upper lip, but three out of four. <laughs> wasn't dad that broke that off. So that's thought. a yeah. long, rambling question as from when you were my student, I tend to. But so, no, that that Lucy divorced character, I think, was less significant. And it would take, until we got into the 1970s, with shows like uh, One Day at a Time. That was probably the groundbreaking program where she was not only divorced, but she really talked about it and it, would, it it affected the way she was able to live her life and raise her kids. And that was an important show, of course, out of the Norman Lear st- stable, which has now been rebooted, I think probably the best reboot of an old TV show, maybe of all of them that we've done so
0: far. Wow. And Bob, it's absolutely fascinating. Let's talk about another Norman Lear show and another spinoff, which was Maud. And really, B. Arthur's breakthrough character in the 1970s, and this represented a really strong female lead character. And the show talked about many controversial things when it aired, political, social issues such as abortion and other things that were not necessarily previously discussed. How important was this time period, this decade, this show, and B. Arthur's lead female character in the hit show, Maude.
2: Norman Lear shows, and I think we can say this without hyperbole or without question, were the single most important influential programs in the history, entertainment programs, in the history of American television. Up until the debut of All in the Family, Norman Lear's first uh, uh, big show in, what was it, January of 1960 19- Seventy-one television, with a couple of exceptions, Smothers Brothers and Laughing and whatever, but television have essentially existed in a parallel universe where the real world was not happening. During the worst years of the Vietnam War, we had a high-rated series called Gomer Pyle USMC, took place in the U.S. Marine Corps, never mentioned that we were at war. The decade of civil rights, the 60s, the burgeoning modern women's movement, the Cold War, Vietnam. We had shows like uh, about flying nuns and the talking horses and my mother, the car. No kidding, that was the 60s. Uh, <laughs> All in the Family comes out in 1971 and pretty much flips that overnight. Every single episode deals with an issue that was completely forbidden, except on a few variety shows up until uh, uh, that point, and they embrace it. We have minor cursing on it, which seems quaint by today's standards, but was a big, stinking deal back then. And they dealt with, you name the contemporary issue, it, it was like a, a catalog of them. Maud was a spin-off of that. Maud was Archie. Archie was the bigot. Maud was his liberal cousin. And she, the very fact that she was a middle-aged woman, she was an, an avid feminist. She was on her, I think, third or fourth husband at the time, living with her uh, husband and her daughter, who was divorced with a child. I mean, again, it took all of that. Uh, it took the leave it to beaver idea and blew it to smithereens. All in the family, to some extent, already did that. Done that, and that episode where she decides to have an abortion—it was two parts—and it's extraordinary in all kinds of ways. First of all, now I may be a little off on this. Abortion was legal where she was living at that time, but I think it's just before Roe v. Wade. I'm not sure exactly what the time uh, it was, but this was still a big abortion episodes on network shows are still a big deal that uh, aren't done a lot. So in the first episode, she finds out she's pregnant, which was already an interesting thing because she was a much older woman and she certainly wasn't planning this. And then the way in which they, she made this decision was done in all kinds of fascinating sort of ways. So that's sh- all in the family, the Jeffersons, Maud, Good Times, these all really claimed once and for all that broadcasting from radio back in the 20s through television up through the 1960s that was too afraid to offend viewers and advertisers to deal with any kind of significant contemporary issues. Those Norman Lear shows proved that that was that not only could they do that, but viewers would embrace them. All in the Family was the number one show five years in a row that had never happened before. And it's with that Norman Lear universe that we really began begin to see television open up to a whole new way of defining what we mean by family, and what the trajectory of marriage can be. And it wasn't too long after that that we were seeing that opening up in ways that even Norman Lear shows hadn't done.
0: Bob, would you look at what followed? President Ronald Reagan, he was the first divorce president. Did that, on the heels of these shows that you mentioned, did that change the conception of divorce? What impact did that have, if any?
2: Yeah, well, I hate to say this, but to some extent, I think the the role of divorce in Ronald Reagan's presidency was kind of like the role of divorce in that Lucy show we were talking about, which is, it was a fact, it was there, but Ronald Reagan, let's face it, was not necessarily (laughs) a president who was an advocacy of empowering people to get out of, I mean, he, he... he wasn't a poster uh, a child for divorce. As a matter of fact, the way he kind of hung around uh, Nancy implied that they'd been married since birth. So so anyway, yeah, I mean, I guess that was important, but I'm not sure that that, was, that, that really became one of those rallying points uh, around things. But other things, of course, were changing significantly at that point. And I guess the very fact that a divorced person could run for president get elected and have it not be a big issue, I guess was saying something, because that might have been a bigger issue back in back in the day. It's The relationship, though, between television and how we see marriage and family and all the rest Mm of it, I think the the knee-jerk response is always the whole we are what we watch. And many people now say that showing all these dysfunctional families is simply leading us away from family values and corrupting everybody, and we're, we're all... The end of civilization as we know it is Will and Grace's fault. A lot of people make that argument. But I have to keep thinking back to... we've got a huge kind of uh, laboratory experiment for this, the baby boom generation. They grew up with some of the most unbelievably propagandistic family values television. And they were mainlining thousands of hours of it into their cerebral cortexes a week, myself included, well, thousands of hours a year. And that back then, as we said, No premarital sex, no marital sex, no implying sex. That generation that grew up with Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet and The Donna Reed Show, systematically, when they became adults, completely deconstructed the utopias in those programs. They started to divorce at a rate never before seen. They advocated and got the legalization of abortion. They raised consciousnesses with, with regards to gender and uh, uh, race and types of families and all this kind of thing. If we are what we watch, those that generation that grew up with Leave it to Beaver should have been like the Norman Rockwell-esque family in the history of the world, and they didn't do that. And for that matter, when Cosby, Family Ties, and Growing Pains came back to reclaim that old-fashioned notion of family and marriage perfection that didn't seem to turn that whole thing around so what we see on television i don't think becomes a prescription for what we become but I think television is very good at helping to normalize the fact that back in the '50s it was the only thing that was normal was a suburban family now television has normalized a lot more than just that middle class white suburban family
0: And Bob, let's talk about another show, the hit show Mad Men, which the hero in the show, Don Draper, he's a flawed character. He goes through a divorce. The show deals with divorce during the 1960s, when it was much more stigmatized than it is today. What did Mad Men, a contemporary show set in the 60s, add to the modern conversation about divorce.
2: Yeah, I, I think, and you you hit the nail on the head. It was set in the '60s, but it was a modern show, and it 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 showed us the '60s on television in the way that the '60s could never show us on television. The 60s on TV during the 60s showed us this whole world of flying nuns that I was talking about before. Mad Men was finally able to do a show set in the 60s, but it took till the new century to, to do it. And it was really alarming. I mean, the way women were treated at the workplace and all that kind of thing. As as for divorce, it, it was, I mean, by that time, of course, we'd seen divorce, uh, the, the Kramer versus Kramering phenomenon. It happened a long, uh, a long time ago, but... That show, by being a really literate, serialized program, I think allowed us to explore some of the real estate of divorce, especially in the context of a place where you're constantly trying to cover up the fact that you're having problems because it is stigmatized and all of that. And they set it up in the the pilot episode it was so exquisite in that show. We, we, we get, get to know Don. He has this triumph. We see all these relationships. He's out with this uh, woman that he's seducing. All this stuff is happening. This man about town, this uh, product of the age of Hugh Hefner. And then the very last scene... He gets on the train, goes home to where the suburbs that presumably Beaver and Father Knows Best and everything are in. And here we see this Leave it to Beaver house. He goes in. They're playing on the street where you live. And he's got a beautiful wife right out of a, a sitcom. He's got the beautiful kids right out of a sitcom. And you knew at that point you were going to be in for a ride with this show. And that it was going to peripherally, peripherally be about a, uh, a guy in the ad industry, but it was going to be a whole lot more. And it was going to take that perfect notion of the American family that we were in for so many years on television. And it, on television itself, was going to take it apart and break it into a million
0: little pieces. Wow, that's an absolutely fantastic analysis. And you mentioned Kramer versus Kramer. So let's go to the big screen. I want to talk about the movie and the impact of Mrs. Doubtfire, which starred Robin Williams and Sally Field. In Mrs. Doubtfire, the lead characters seem to find happiness at the end of the movie, though they remain divorced and they don't reconcile. Other movies, The Parent Trap, Mr. Mom, couple split, they get back together. And we've seen different endings in different movies like this before. Is either choice correct Does either ending, does it do a disservice in any way to the viewer, to the audience?
2: No, I mean, I suppose that Mrs. Doubtfire, you're right, that that you pointed out happens in a very interesting way in that film. Lots of other weird stuff about Mrs. Doubtfire we could talk about. No, I mean, I think the, and that list illustrates something that I think is positive, which is the idea that there obviously isn't a, you don't go to a counselor and they say, the way you two have to deal with this is to get back together. That's the way to solve the problem of a divorce, and you will figure out how to have how that will happen. Nor, I think, can one categorically say uh, the the way to deal with this is the two of you should never see each other again. Obviously, marriage and all that it involves in our culture is a really complicated thing, and there are lots of instances in which one needs to get out of it and other instances in which one may want to go to council, whatever, as many different ways as there are couples to deal with that. When movies began to explore those different ways, I think that illustrated the idea That this wasn't a monolithic notion of marriage, you're in it till you die, till death do us part, as the vows uh, um, uh, say. And I think that was probably healthy. You can have the nice, optimistic, romantic whatever of things like Parent Trap and these other things where, you know, the the kids or whomever else show these people that in the end you really do still love each other like you did when you first met and all that. That's fine. But the other idea uh, of, of movies showing that you can, in fact, become unmarried and still be civil to each other or still even be friends. We all know some couples like that, I'm sure or other movies about escaping marriages as you would escape a monster in a Stephen King movie. And I think the, the important thing is that the, cult, the popular culture began, began to reflect that complex recipe and collection of ways that things could happen. It was the same with the, ish, the, the portrayal of, you name the underrepresented person. When, when Amos and Andy and Beulah, Were the only representations in mass culture in television of black people? That was a terrible situation because it was they they were they were the only people and they were represented in in a certain way that many many people found and still find offensive. And and people would make the argument, well, what's so bad about the presenting a uh, lazy buffoon? Homer Simpson's a lazy buffoon, and we don't complain about that. Well, that's true. Homer Simpson's a lazy white buffoon. But the, the TV is filled with white doctors and heroes and lawyers and all that kind of stuff. And that wasn't the case for a long time with regards to race, even with regards to women. I think that was the same. The same was true with marriage. For so long, popular culture embraced this dominant, not. you couldn't violate the idea of marriage. And by the time we get to this list of movies that you were naming, we were starting to see that there was a menu of options. Now, some would say, oh, yes, but you give people the options and they won't stick it out in a, a marriage. Well, that may be true, but there's, obviously, as we know now, some marriages where it's probably not a healthy lifestyle choice to stick sure. it out.
0: Absolutely, of, of course. Bob, I want to go back to something you said before about the impact of the Brady Bunch and blended families and step families, because I'm fascinated by this. And you also mentioned modern family. When you look at the Brady Bunch in that decade, in that time period, and you look at a show now like Modern Family, and you look at the makeup of of, of American families today in 2022, does a show like Modern Family get it right? And is there a television show out there today that truly encapsulates the American family?
2: I have to say, I really admire Modern Family. Personally, I think it stayed a little too long at the fair. It, it got to be that, is that still on kind of uh, thing. But that show pulled off some real amazing sleights of hand. First of all, it was a, for the most part, family-friendly, gentle, kind, nice show about, uh, about family. Everybody, for all of their quirks in that show, really loved each other and really belonged together and really were, I think, decent people. To do that as late in the game as Modern Family did it and not having us rolling our eyes saying this is the squarest, most old-fashioned, unwatchable thing that maybe grandma will like to watch, but we don't want to. I mean, to pull off what they did after years of Married with Children, The Simpsons, those uh, Family Guy, those kinds of shows, was really hard to do. Try writing hip, funny comedy about a functional family and they, they did it. I think they managed it. So I think that, that was that was really something from a purely artistic standpoint. But also I think they they really did and it wasn't overdone. It maybe could get preachy at times, but not very often. It it showed in fact again it was almost a catalog of ways in which family way it can be expressed uh, in a modern culture and the way in which uh, love and relationships can manifest them, th- themselves. And now it didn't go too wide of the uh, mark. Modern family didn't settle any of the same frontiers that like pose managed to settle. I think also very nicely, but you did have a, if you look at the, the list of families that were uh, portrayed there, each one of which is in the little frame in the beginning, I thought that was a very self-conscious idea of of that. We had one couple that was pretty much the leave it to beaver more older notion, and then we had different couples that, that represented the results of all kinds of different things that had happened in their lives that led them. So yeah, I, I give I give that show a real A in its the many things it was able to do and at the same time be a really funny program.
0: Oh, I absolutely agree. I thought the show was terrific. I also agree. I think it probably went on about one year too long, but you're right. It really illustrated the different family relationships. And I thought the show was really beautifully created and demonstrated a lot in terms of the times that we're living in. Bob, I want to ask you a question about the networks and the platform and really where we are in 2022 and the future of TV. Different networks are able to air different content and different programs because of the platform and how and where they release their media. Cable channels, you have Netflix and you have HBO Max and streaming services. What's the future of television and also the relationship between what these different platforms can portray and can show.
2: Okay. Well, first of all, the what what they can portray or show the the limits that kept networks so sanitized for so long from the radio era through about nineteen seventy was self-regulation. They were pretty much just paranoid about what advertisers were going to find offensive and that they would lose their advertiser or their viewers would. And then the indecency rule, which only applies to broadcast uh, Well, I don't need to tell you this. It only applies to uh, over-the-air television from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. People, I think, are amazed that in the last hour Johnny Carson could have been using really, really bad words. It was the networks that chose not to let him do that, not the, not the law. So anyway, there's that. But so, I mean, as far as streaming and as cable, cable is concerned, the regulation pretty much goes to regulation of the only thing that keeps them from what they can do would be regulated speech. I mean, they can't can't do child pornography or certain kinds of hate speech and that kind of thing. And the networks are getting pretty close to reaching parity with that, not by any means there yet. So that that has really changed, that that whole idea of the old days. I remember even since I've been teaching this when network executives were still redlining the hells and dams kind of thing. That seems... Colonial Williamsburg by today's... The big difference, I think, is in these the new technological de- deliveries, and, and this is something that we're still reeling and and trying to figure out how it's going to affect it, was that we used to have, not that many years ago, in the network era, the pre-cable era, this, as I said before, this oligopoly where everybody watched the same thing at the same time. Whether you wanted to or not, it was out there. And there was a sense that that give, gave us some cultural... Glue. I know it was ridiculous for Walter Cronkite in the 60s and through the 70s to end his broadcast saying, and that's the way it is. We know how naive that is to utter such a thing. But there was a sense that he, and he was always called the most trusted man in America, he did sort of for a half hour every night, give us a basic thing of facts that we could then argue. And when Walter Cronkite did that famous editorial that we needed to get out of the Vietnam War, Lyndon Johnson said, if I've lost Cron- Cronkite, I've lost America. Lyndon Johnson decides not to rerun, re- run for re-election to the presidency, launching us into the real 60s that we call the 60s. So anyway, all of that showed how there was a real sense that, that that mass culture held us together. My fa- grandfather, grandfather, who was kind of a standard, bigoted, Archie Bunker-like character, he saw all in the family because he, there was nothing else on. And he learned something from that. He realized, wait a second, if this is the buffoon they're laughing at, and this guy is f- familiar to me, and I think his consciousness was raised, none of that now has to happen you don't need me to say this, the echo chamber argument that is being argued constantly, but now you don't, we don't all have to watch the same things at the same time, so we could go to wherever we already have a tendency to go. And I think we still don't know the enormous implications of that, whether in fact a republic like this can even hold together with the centrifugal force that a infinite amount of media that streaming and all the rest uh, uh, has allowed, I think is a big question. And I think it's the answer is getting more and more obvious as we, as we go along. TV, for all of the complaints, and good reason to complain it, three companies were dominating what we were hearing. That was bad. Many voices uh, were silenced. But there was a sense that uh, television – had a unifying factor, not only because it was only one TV on. If you wanted to see Ed Sullivan showing us the Beatles, you had to sit through a guy doing card tricks. It, it did bring families together. Some of the happiest times I had with my family was that at night before we went to bed. We all watched TV, and there was only one television set in the house. That's all changed. All of that fragmentation is happening. The good news is way better programming by a thousandfold than anything that we ever had during the network era. The bad news is there's a certain cultural sharing that was allowed by that network era that has not been replaced by anything.
0: Bob, that's, that's fascinating. Let's have some fun to finish it out on the shine on podcast. I know producer Dave has queued up for us a few clips from TV over the years, which I want to play for you. They represent different time periods. Tell us what you think the impact whether it's marriage divorce the definition of family or whatever else may come to mind producer dave
1: thanks evan the first clip comes to us from the golden girls where we bring up b arthur again on the podcast of course she played the character of dorothy on golden girls and this is her having a conversation with her ex-husband or at least soon to be ex-husband stan let's take a listen
3: have a seat what can i do for you the first thing you can do is get rid of that ridiculous toupee. Oh. I want to speak to the bald guy who left me. Ow! What's the matter with you? You walked out on me, Stanley's Barnack. Now I know why. You walked out on me and you didn't even have the decency to tell me you were leaving. I heard it from some lawyer over the telephone. A stranger, Stanley, a total stranger. Told me that my marriage was over. Dorothy, look, things happened. Things happened. You're damn right, things happened. 38 years happened. 38 years of sharing and, and crying and dreaming and fighting and loving and, and children and diapers and, and school plays and little league and worrying if you'd get through your gallbladder surgery. And wondering if I get through another Sunday dinner at your mother's house in the lean years when the business failed.
1: I think that's a good place to stop it, Evan. Just uh, sort of the heartbreaking moment, kind of in a in a show that was whimsical, like the Golden Girls. But Professor, maybe you want to weigh in on what your thoughts your thoughts are on that.
2: I remember seeing that uh, episode the first time around when I was watching it in uh, ye olden way of on a television set while it was airing. And it had that it had that preachy quality to it. It is a television sitcom and that's the idiom in which it works. But I think once she gets going and she gives that litany, that definition of what a long-term marriage is is and what you know we always see most of the movies end with the marriage the vows and all the rest of it and they write off into the sunset that list which has both the meeting the loving the whatever stuff but then the diapers the school plays the gallbladder surgery that was a stroke of genius to put in (laughs) talk about warts and all a gallbladder is even grosser than a wart (laughs) and Going through that list, and she does it with, and and that could only, I think, she was the one that had to deliver that line. That could not have been delivered by the husband, even in a different situation. That that soliloquy of marriage in all of its, marriage essentially as an endurance test of good things and bad things and, and all the rest of it. And hearing that after we've, of course, been told that it was ended in the the, the, the call, a telephone call from a stranger. I think for all of its kind of over-the-top melodrama, I think that's a really, really beautiful soliloquy. Cut, cut all of stuff in the beginning and end, and just a soliloquy of, of what marriage is. Anyway, I thought that was lovely.
0: Well said, and, and Bob, the show Golden Girls, why does it still resonate with so many people several decades after it first aired, I think probably the four performers are the
2: biggest uh, reason. I think they, the performers of that show are even better than the writing uh, uh, was on it. But it is kind of amazing. Uh, there was a period in which college students were totally enamored of the Golden Girls. They we're talking twenty-year-olds. I-, I could never understand this unless they were wise enough to think, "Okay, I'm going to get old too," and this show proves to me. That being in one 60s and whatever is going to be just as fun as living in a college dorm is. So maybe there was that optimism of it. But I know when I was 20, I wasn't thinking that far, uh, far ahead. I think the, the, just the performers uh, and the we don't get a lot of we didn't get a lot of opportunity to see for women interacting as the main characters and that allowed all kinds of humor that was different than we've seen before obviously that's that changed one could argue that sex in the city in many ways was simply a uh, litigatable ripoff of the golden girls even though it seemed very different
1: next clip comes to us from the tv show murphy brown of course in the the iconic show murphy brown candace bergen plays a tv personality herself who is raising a child as a, as a single mom Now, for our younger listeners, you might not recall that at the time, Vice President Dan Quayle went on TV and during a famous speech about family values, cited Murphy Brown, the television character, as a bad example of family values since she was a, a single mom. The TV show, the fictional TV show, Murphy Brown, then decided to put that moment of Quayle giving the speech onto its show in a stroke of genius And then had murphy brown the tv character respond like this
3: but tonight's program should not be simply about blame the vice president says he felt it was important to open a dialogue about family values and on that point we agree unfortunately it seems that for him the only acceptable definition of a family is a mother a father and children and in a country where millions of children grow up in non-traditional families That definition seems painfully unfair. Perhaps it's time for the vice president to expand his definition and recognize that whether by choice or circumstance, families come in all shapes and sizes, and ultimately, what really defines a family is commitment, caring, and love. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce... The character
1: then goes on to introduce some apparently real-life families that come in all different shapes and forms, Professor. I'm I'm sure you could teach entire classes on this moment, but but tell if you could tell us in brief what your thoughts are about this this moment's place in television history.
2: Yeah, I show this episode. It's a two parter, actually, and I show it every uh, whenever we get to that uh, point in the history of television. So I've seen this thing probably. Twenty-five times, and it is a hilarious episode. For those who don't remember, as you pointed out, uh, that Dan Quayle thing was huge news—the cover of every newspaper out there. And that gets back to the conversation we, where we started this conversation: that the tele, the idea of family, the TV embraced on in the 1950s, the Leave It to Beaver, Father Knows Best, is what a lot of political leaders had grown up on, and they believed that that's what family was. And then when they opened their eyes in the real world and it wasn't like Father Knows Best, they thought somehow that 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 family values were dying. Quayle, I am convinced, was judging what was going on in the real world by what he thought was the perfect family by what he saw on television. I'm not even completely sure whether he knew whether Murphy Brown was fictional or not. Uh, he <laughs> referred to her as a person. And with Quayle, you never know. But anyway, this was a huge deal Quayle was also well known for uh, correcting a student on their spelling but uh, correcting them wrong the student had spelled potato correctly and he you whatever know, but that yeah. another story. Anyway, he does this takes Murphy Brown out uh, on as the biggest uh, kind of enemy of family values and culture as we know it. They had the whole months to prepare this episode. They did it as a two-parter. It's hilarious. Now, we watched that Little clip there, and many people, again, might think, oh, man, again, this is preachy, old-fashioned television. But Murphy Brown was not a preachy character. She was a a powerful broad, as they used to say in the old uh, Guys and Dolls era. And the rest of this is not that way at all, which makes, in the end when she suddenly gets this, this this very sincere kind of thing, all the more moving. It was very, very moving when she uh, did that. And I love that list of a family is defined by, and you always expect that it's not about whether it's a mom or dad or whatever. It's about whether you love each other. That word love has become meaningless because it's so thrown around. I love how she had the trilogy of words, commitment, caring, and love. Love's certainly important, but she didn't give it that first, cliched kind of a a thing i think that was a a great episode by the way an episode that's fairly hard to get your hands on last time i checked that that full two part was hard to find but it's right up there uh, among the top five i think most significant single episodes of comedies in television history
1: we have connections here at the shine on podcast professor if you want to talk later we'll, we'll hook you up for
2: sure yeah well i of course <laughs> it off the air so i show it in my class with its original commercial oh. <laughs> <laughs> local news is promoing how they're they of course how the white house is responding to the episode and all that kind of
1: stuff. oh that's funny that's funny I'm, i wonder if you have uh the people at P- pepsi and burger king are probably happy for that or maybe crazy eddie i don't know what you have on there but anyway let's uh let's Take a more light. This is, I think, fair to say, a more lighthearted clip comes from the show. Curb your enthusiasm. Fans will know that at some point in the run of the show, Larry decides to Larry and Cheryl decide to get divorced. And this is Larry's first meeting with his divorce divorce lawyer. Let's take a listen to this.
4: Larry, I know divorce is painful, but this is a fantastic deal. It's not only the best deal I'm going to get for you, it's the best deal that anybody's going to get for anybody. You're going to keep your house. You're keeping all your property. I know that's okay. important to you. i got to be a good guy. Yeah, you will look like a good guy here. But I don't really want to be a good guy. I know. You know that, yes. right? Okay. This is what I do. Yeah. You're coming out ahead in this deal, and she's coming out behind. Imagine, like, a Dutch apple pie, right? The filling, the real meat of the pie is everything you're getting, and the, <laughs> the top of the pie that looks so nice is what she's getting. She's just getting the appearance. Yeah, but I really like that crumbly stuff on the top. No, everybody does, yeah. Yeah. It's delicious. I (laughs) like that more than the pie. I would rather get that than the pie. Yeah, no, but but it's... But that's just... That's a part of it. But the real... It wouldn't be a pie without the filling. Yeah, but it's my favorite part. So uh, let's switch it. She's getting the filling... And you are getting the the razzle dazzle that is the brown crumbly the stuff. The delicious stuff. brown crumbly stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of
1: course yeah, Larry good... manages to miss the entire point of this, which is <laughs> what he does, right? But but maybe thoughts on not the not just this clip, but Professor, but on the the show and the way it dealt with Larry and Cheryl's relationship and whether that's realistic or what. We know this is another show that, that presses the boundaries of meta content, right? Because he's playing a fictionalized version of himself but i'll let you talk
2: yeah well first of all a a, a masterclass in the danger of metaphor you come up with a great metaphor of this pie and the whole thing goes uh, <laughs> crazy. Here it doesn't matter, but it's a lesson that we should learn. The danger of metaphor, remember the domino theory of communism. That got us into a number of w- wars. So be careful when you bring up the pie when you're not talking about pie. This, I mean, like so much of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is really the first show, I think, to be uh, described as a cringe TV. It's been going on forever. But the the whole way in which they dealt with the relationship. Relationship, uh, between Larry and his wife, and this whole divorce thing, uh, and everything, hysterically funny in that it it, it takes the kind of cynical self-absorbed, completely selfish idea of of Larry, who, of course, embodies kind of the ultimate, if the id had total control over your your body. And they make it so hysterical. Those kind of scenes have got to be the favorites of every divorce attorney uh, out there. Though, we should point out that it's not uh, new ground. L.A. Law had a main character who was a divorce attorney, uh, and he was one of the stars of the show, Arnie Becker, uh, Corbin Burnson. And uh, there was also a show, I think, also by Stephen Botchko, who created L.A. Law, called Civil Wars, which, as the title implies, was all about a divorce. And, of course, Divorce Court, the kind of courtroom reality show, I knew a version of that as a kid. There's a version of it much more recent, and there was a version of it back in the uh,
0: 50s before I was born. i got to tell you, I couldn't get enough of that scene, and Dave, when we were prepping. I, I must have watched that scene, that clip, about 15 times last night hysterically laughing each and every time
1: <laughs> we we've got a uh, time for one more evan and professor and um comes from the show the marvelous mrs Maisel, a favorite of mine and i think evan a favorite of the podcast here right um as uh, fans of the show will know, this 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 is another period piece. I know you guys were talking about Mad Men earlier, and uh, a look at a couple in the it is in the '60s, I believe, right? Yep. And they're they're in divorce court, apparently about to embark upon what seems to be an amicable divorce. And we'll take a little listen to this courtroom sequence.
3: Mister Maisel, you're the husband.
0: I am. Yes. What are you doing here? Are you contesting? No, sir, I'm not contesting. Then why are you here? Just moral
3: support for my wife Well, she divorces you that's right for adultery that's right it's very modern it's almost french but now all this (laughs) seems a little less straightforward your honor the arrangement between mr and mrs mazel is completely amicable that'll be a first well they are ready to move forward
0: i'm not so sure of that the couple before you they were at each other's throats that's the norm it seems like the two (laughs) of you are something different and i want to make sure you're not making a mistake here
3: tick tock tick tock quiet We are not making a mistake, Your Honor.
0: But your husband is here lending moral support. Explain to me how that fits into this. It doesn't? Joel, get the fuck out of here. You're the one who's not supposed to be here. Whoa, order, right now. Who is this person? That is my manager, Your Honor. Manager of what? Your Honor, I'm a performer, a comedian, and I'm about to go on the road. A comedian? Yes. Why? I don't sing. Your Honor, (laughs) she's downplaying this. She's going on the road with Shy Baldwin. It's a huge thing. And you're okay with this? I am. You both seem okay with everything. We are. Which brings me back to my point. Why are you divorcing? Uh, I just can't be your wife right now.
1: Okay, but what about your children, Ethan? And- so we'll bring it down there, but kind of an unusual scene. It's a hilarious show, and like Mad Men, I think it, it goes back in time but takes a different take than than you would get if this was a divorce being portrayed on TV in the 60s. But, the Professor, I'll let you take it from there.
2: I don't know if anything I can say will simply bring us down from that absolutely exquisite scene, the timing of that back and forth. It, 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 it was, I thought I was in an Abbott and Costello movie for a minute, and it is such a sophisticated argument. As the judge said, it's very French. <laughs> oh my, I mean, it, it, television <laughs> writing, I, I think back 1970, Mary uh, Richards couldn't even be divorced uh, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, and now those last two clips... We're dealing with divorce from this cosmically absurd Larry David way to this incredibly sophisticated Mrs. Maisel way. I just, I guess we have to say hallelujah that television has just gotten so much better in the last 30, 40 years.
0: And I have to say, I can't wait for that that show to come back. It feels like forever since we've seen a new episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel.
2: We can never get an I mean, uh, a great cat skill, greatest cat skill show ever made. And you can never have too many cat skills.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Professor Thompson, I want to thank you for coming on the Shine On podcast. This was an absolute treat. I really appreciate it. It was truly wonderful having you on the show.
2: Well, it was my pleasure. And remember, back in the day, I taught you everything you know, Evan.
0: <laughs> Trust me, I tell everybody that you did. Thanks again. Thank you so much episode 32 what a show what an absolutely terrific episode bob thompson he was brilliant he was spectacular and how much fun was this having him on the show thank you to all the listeners producer dave thank you for putting those fantastic clips together i know you can't wait to get home and watch reruns of (laughs) golden girls and the brady bunch
1: you know it that was fun
0: You can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, iHeartRadio, and all major podcast platforms and YouTube. Check it out. Check out the episode on Pod 617, Producer Dave, the best podcast producer in the business. To all the listeners, leave a comment, leave a review. You can follow the podcast and follow me on social media for the latest content at shineanddivorce.com. Send in your emails. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon.